Good morning. Good morning. I hope you're having a good week. Um, and I want to welcome you to New Hope. And if you are a guest with us, if you would do uh, two things for me. One, if you'd fill out the Connect card in the seat back that's in front of you. Just let us know you were here. We love making sure that you are able to be connected here at our church. If we can pray for you, any questions you have, that's a really great way to do that. Drop it in the offering tray at the end of the services. In addition to that, I want to invite you to stop at the Welcome Center for a couple of reasons. We have a gift for you, but really you can learn about different ministries, different ways to get connected here at the church. And if you call New Hope your church home, you're a member, you've been here for a while, I want to invite everybody here to keep in mind that next Sunday night, uh, we are throwing a party for the community that we call Harvest Fest. And uh, it's going to be right here on our campus, Sunday evening. We want you to bring anybody you want to bring. We're going to have food trucks, pony rides, petting zoos, bounce houses. I don't think you're supposed to call them bounce houses, inflatables, whatever they're called. Fun stuff, okay? Uh, come and hang out. We want you to be here. Uh, we just want you to come out and have a good time in the community. Let, let everybody know that we... Uh, that church and Christians can have a fun time. And so uh, please tell anybody you want and join us for that. Uh, we're going to continue a teaching series this morning in uh, First and Second Timothy. So if you have a Bible, you can turn it on or open your Bible up or grab the Bible in the seat back in front of you and you can go ahead and open the First Timothy chapter 5 is where we're going to be today. The last few weeks, uh, David has walked us through a shift in this series. So we called the series This Is Us. Because it's really Paul writing to his young protege, Timothy, telling him what life in the church looks like. You, you want to live in the church? You want to be the way that God has called you to be? Here's what it looks like. And over and over and over again, he's instructing him. You get to chapter 3, and his tone kind of shifts when you read it and study the passages. He begins to list off a series of what we call exhortations. They're like commands, uh, but in a gentle, pastoral, fatherly kind of way. So he begins to command him about life in the church. Here's the different roles that people play in the church. Okay, here's, here's how you uh, participate in uh, the teaching in the church. Here's what you're supposed to do about the teaching, meaning guard it and protect it. And last week, David talked to us about being people of gratitude who protect doctrine but do it with grace. And so it's really important to note that when you study your Bible, when you open up to 1 Timothy, there were actually originally no chapter and verse divisions. There were none. And so we added that later on, which means that the first Timothy really read like a letter, a complete letter. So there was no break between chapter 4, verse 16, and chapter 5, verse 1. Okay, so in chapter 4, verse 16, where Paul would write these words, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save your, both yourself and your hearers. Meaning, guard the truth. It's from the truth of God's word that everything else kind of flows. So he says, really protect it. And you have to persevere in protecting truth. Not only protecting the teaching of truth, but really living it out. Like, I don't know if you've experienced this, but like really living the way the Bible's called us to live, it's not easy in this world. I mean, relationships are messy, the culture's difficult. But he says, you have to persist in this, persist in living lives according to what God says is true, because in doing so, you're allowing God to shape you and mold you into who he needs you to be in order to do what he needs you to do. Now, here's one of the difficulties, friends. When we, uh, here at New Hope, when we get down to planning sermon series, one of the things we really enjoy doing is expository preaching. What I mean by that is, we like to pick a book of the Bible and just teach through it. We like to preach through it. We like it to guide us around here. That's now, it's not the only way to preach, and I'm not here to tell you that other preachers that don't, don't do that and they do topical stuff are bad. That's not my point. My point is, our preference, mine and David's, 
as the primary preachers of the church. We just enjoy walking through books of the Bible and teaching and preaching through them. The blessing of that is that you get a bigger picture of Scripture. You get a deeper, more full theology, in my mind, because it's the Scriptures that are guiding everything. The difficulty is when you come across chapters like 1 Timothy chapter 5, because you are preaching to an audience of people in different seasons of life. And so what Paul's going to talk about in chapter 5 really relates to certain people and doesn't relate to other people yet. Okay? But one of the things I've learned in journeying with Jesus over the years, one of the lessons I've learned the hard way is this, that biblical truth doesn't pertain to your life until all of a sudden it pertains to your life. Okay? That's why it's really important to study all of Scripture. This is why I think Paul, in the second letter he wrote to Timothy, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he says, hey, Timothy, all Scripture, not just select verses. And you know what I mean by select verses. We like to take verses and put them on coffee mugs. And we love to put them on scenic calendars, right? So you hang that in your kitchen or on your refrigerator, and it's this beautiful scenery and then a, a psalm. And it's completely out of context, but it makes you feel good. And so we, have, we, we like to do that all the time with Scripture, but what Paul says to Timothy is like, no, all of Scripture. Don't go throwing away your calendars. That, I shouldn't have said that. Right. <laughs> Keep your coffee mugs. My bad. All right. No emails either. <laughs> he says, all of Scripture, Timothy. All of it. It's been breathed out by God. Not only that, but like all of it, not just parts of it. All of it is profitable for you right now. You can learn something from all of it. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, or, or correcting your life. Right? And what it does is when you submit yourself to biblical authority, when you allow the scriptures to control your life, not just what somebody says, but you're actually in God's word, it actually makes you more complete. Like it has this profound ability to affect and change your life. See, this is why we like preaching expository sermons, because it's a, it's a holistic picture of scripture. Look, it's not the only way to do it, and it's not the only way we'll always do it. It's the preference, though. That's why when I pray for you, or I'll say things like this in, in our services, I'll say, I hope that when you leave this place today, that you're different than when you walked in. That's not just to be cliche. Genuinely, from my heart, I believe that this word has the ability, when you hear it proclaimed and taught, and you're listening to it, and you learn it, and you accept it into your life, when you understand God's word, you literally can leave here different than when you arrived. That's the kind of power I believe it has. So this morning, that's what I want to pray over us for. I want to take a minute, and I want to genuinely ask, and I want you to consciously think about this, genuinely, the creator of the universe, God the creator, the one who created everything, even that beautiful sunrise this morning, if you were up early enough to see it, which you're at the 11 o'clock service, so you weren't. But if you, <laughs> but if you, if you get to see the beautiful, like the God who created all of it, he wants to meet with us right now, and, hear, and he wants you to hear from him. And so before we jump into chapter 5, let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for meeting us in this place, Father. Thank you for how good you are. Thank you, God, that you, you've blessed us in so many ways. And for that, Father, we're grateful. God, I believe with all my heart that we can leave here different than when we arrived. I believe that. I really do. I believe your word can impress so heavily on our heart and change our minds that we can walk out of here ready to pursue a life with Jesus. And that's my prayer for everybody here. God, that you would teach us something this morning from your word. And I offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Heard this week of a guy named Charlie Kim. Charlie's the CEO of a New York City tech company called Next Jump. And Charlie makes this point. He says, if you are going through a difficult season in your family, 
you would never lay off one of your children, right? Some of you are like, well, which kid, right? <laughs> which kid? Like, but as funny as it is, you don't go through a difficult season in life and then pick the family member who's the weakest link and say, you know, we're having to make some changes around here and uh, you're just not keeping up and so you got to go. And you don't kick them out of the family. It's not the way it works. He said, so why do we do that in our organizations? And so this CEO, he instituted a lifetime employment policy. He said that if you get hired by next jump, you can never be fired for performance reasons. You get hired on at this company, you can never be fired for performance reasons. He says, if you do get hired there and you have performance issues, we will work with you. We will come alongside you and get you coaching and get you the help to get you to perform better the same way you would if your child came home with a C in math, right? Like if my son Caleb came home and he had a C in his math class, I'm not going to look at him and say, a C? Uh, you can't be a Jankowski, you're out. You're done. See you, buddy. Go find another place to sleep tonight. Like I'm never going to do that. I'm going to look at him and say, you got a C? Okay, it's in math, so mom and dad can't help. So let's figure out <laughs> who can. So we're going to get somebody to come in here, and they're going to help coach you to get you better at math. That's how you, he says that's how we should treat our employees, is what uh, the CEO says. You see, this is the reason, he says, why we don't, uh, we don't like these big CEOs, these people that own these big companies that get $150 plus million bonuses. We don't like them. He said, but when you really think about it, it's not the bonus that you're mad about. You're not mad about the money. He said, think about this. If we were to give Mother Teresa, someone like Mother Teresa, a $150 million bonus, are you mad about it? You're like, no way. Like, Mother Teresa, absolutely. Which tells us it's not the money you're upset about. You're, you're upset because the way the person got the money. Because they sacrificed their people in order to get more gain. They violated the number one rule of leadership. That leaders selflessly give of themselves for their employees. They don't selfishly take from their employees for their own gain. You see, this is what Paul's going to talk to us about communicating in life within the family. Here's a picture of my family we took this year. from uh, We were on a little weekend trip to Cincinnati. All right? A lot of fun. Okay? I love this picture for a variety of reasons. You know those type of pictures that you take with your kids where you almost have to discipline them in order to get the picture? You know what I'm talking about? Like 98% of family pictures, you're like, sit still! Or you never have an ice cream again, ever! Right? You'll never have it again if you don't take this picture. And then they take this beautiful picture and everybody's like, oh, your family's so great. You're like, I spanked that kid before this picture. You're like, that's, not, that's not how it works. Right? And then you have pictures like this, where you're just like, all right, guys, on three, go crazy. And one, two, three, ah, and then you take this one picture. This is the picture I want hanging up all throughout the house. I put this picture up here for a reason. This is the screensaver on my computer. I love looking at this picture because here, here's why. My ministry starts right there. That small group of people are the most important people in my life. Not you guys, no offense. Right? Everything I do with them is a direct reflection of the health, right, or not so health, healthy relationship I have with Jesus. My relationship with Jesus is directly reflected in how I interact with, love, and care for my family. It just is. And you can avoid it all you want. You can pretend that that's not true. You can do whatever. It's true. The way I lead them and love them and care for them, the way that I talk about them, the way that I pray with them, the way that I do Bible study with them, the way that I try to mentor each of my children one-on-one -on -one as best of my ability is a direct reflection on the health or lack thereof of the relationship that I have with Jesus. And the same thing is true for you. How we interact with our families is a direct correlation to the health of your relationship with your Savior. That's just a truth. I love these people. I would genuinely, in a heartbeat, lay down my life for them. I wouldn't even think about it. 
And everything I do has to flow from that place. Paul's going to bring this point out in chapter 5. His point is going to be this. Everything we do together as a church family, there's an unbelieving, watching world who's determining what Jesus has or has not done to transform your church family and whether or not they want to be a part of that. So if you're here and you're not a part of a church family, you're not a believer, you get, today you get kind of a glimpse into the way that things should be. Doesn't mean that's the way they always are. Well, Paul's going to talk to us about the family, the family of faith. How are we to interact with one another? How are we to talk to one another? Is it a healthy reflection of our relationships with Jesus or does it reflect something different? Preferences and priorities and power and or is it love and care and patience and kindness? See, Paul starts off in chapter 5 right after telling us to keep watch on this stuff. Watch it closely. Guard this type of teaching. And then he says in verse 1 of chapter 5, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. See, that word rebuke literally means tongue lashing. When you translate it out. So he says, do not give a tongue lashing to an older man. In their culture, the way that you treated elders was extremely important. We don't have that in our culture. Some of you are like, yeah, we do. We... No, we don't. We live in a culture, and it's not all wrong, but there needs to be a better balance. We live in a culture that says that young people are everything, that they are the, they're, the only one, they're the ones that should take on the reign of leadership. They're the ones that should be raised up in leadership, and I think there's a truth to that, but not at the expense of the older generation. And unfortunately, that's a lot of leadership training. The younger generation is all there is, and the older generation doesn't have it together anymore, and so they kind of go on. And what you get is you get a lot of older people that feel left out, or they feel like unused or unworthy, or they don't have anything to offer. And so Paul says, when Timothy, when you're in this church in Ephesus, and he's ministering to these people, and some of the older people had sin issues, how as a young man is Timothy to lead this, these older people? Paul's not telling him to be a pushover. He's not saying just give the older generation whatever they want. All their preferences have to be the way it is, Timothy. You should be very passive-aggressive with them and just be a people-pleaser. It's not what Paul's saying to them. And in fact, we know that because Paul told Timothy already, or Paul tells Timothy, he says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Right? But live the kind of life that's, that's integrity and character. So when he says, don't give a person a tongue lashing, you, you immediately have thought of somebody, I'm sure, that boss that you had or that relative that you had that gave you a tongue lashing that comes on strong and they use the wrong tone and the wrong words and they're just, man, they're just barreling down on top of you and you're just like, man, that's not the way to communicate with me, right? I heard someone say one time, shock effect closes ears. When you're trying to shock someone's system with your tone of voice or your word choice or your body language, whatever, you're trying to shock them, they can't, they're in shock so they can't actually hear what you're trying to say to them. But surprise opens hearts. And so what Paul's saying is surprise them. Go to the older generation, even the ones caught up in sin, and start to treat them like you would treat your dad. Treat them like you treat the older, uh, like people that you care about. And so you go to them, and you listen well, and you learn from them, and then you speak truth into their life, and you're patient. You're not impatient trying to just get what you want. He says, when it comes to older women, treat them like you would treat your mother. Now here's the thing. When my daughter, this is a rule for her, when she starts dating in her 40s, I'm going to tell her, I'm going to tell her, Watch the guy that shows up. You watch the way he treats his mom. Watch the way he talks to her. Watch the way he talks about her. Because if it's not really good, you're going to get rid of him or I'm going to get rid of him. One way or another, he's gone. He's gone. Because it's a clear indication of the health of his own heart. You see, when we tongue lash, when we, we lash out at people, it's not a sign of knowledge, intelligence, power, or authority. All it reveals is insecurity and fear. 
You can argue with that, but then you've got another battle on your hands. Denial. Because when we lash out at people in anger and frustration, this is what Paul is saying to Timothy. Hey, treat them like you treat your mom. Treat them like you treat your dad. He says, when it comes to people your own age, treat them to, like you treat your brothers or your contemporaries. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, my brother and I, we, we, we can cut up and have a good time. Some of you might be like, no, I don't like my brother. I mistreat him. And that's fine, because when I grew up, I didn't like my brother and I mistreated him. But if anyone else mistreated him, we'd have a problem. I can treat him however I want, but you can't. <laughs> because deep down, I love him. Now, he's never going to watch or listen to this. I'm not worried about it. So I, I love him. I care about him. I want what's best for him, right? I want my sons to treat my daughter like in all purity and care and to protect her and to, and to, to guard her and to, to lift her up. And they want what's best for her. And Paul says that's the same way you should treat every woman in the church. He says when you interact with them, you treat the, the men in the church like they're your brothers or they're your fathers. And Think about how profound this would be if it was healthy and people would communicate this way. That's what Paul's getting at. He's saying clear communication from a caring heart, listening to the motive before responding. It's so vitally important for you to communicate like a family because there's an unbelieving, watching world determining whether or not Jesus really makes a difference. He's watching the way that we communicate. Now, here comes the hard part. We were going to begin, he's going to get really specific about a certain group of people. He's going to start to talk about widows. And many of us, we might want to check out. Like, I'm not a widow, I'm young. What do I have to think about when it comes to this? I'm not in that season of life. But here's the thing. You may not be in that season yet, but at some point you're going to have aging parents and grandparents. You're going to have people that you love and care for deeply that are the widows, that are the people that need you to step up and take care of them. And here's the real kicker, whether you like it or not, one day you will be the aging parent and you will be the aging grandparent and you're going to wish and hope that you'd instilled the values in your family at a young age so that they'll be there for you when you need them in your old age. This is what Paul's getting at when he starts in verse 3. He says, honor widows who are truly widows. So there's a standard. We'll get to that. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return for their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. Now, here's the deal. Parents, you can underline that, highlight it, nudge your kid and remind them. You say this to make some return to their parents. Meaning, even Paul knows you can't fully repay your parents for all the awesomeness that they do for you when you're growing up, but you're going to repay it a little bit, right? Not one amen. You're like, amen, my kids will, right? They're going to step up when I get to that age, and they will be there for me because of everything I went through to raise them, right? I think about all my kids, and I'm like, this is not, this is, there are days where you're like, this is all for not. They don't care about me. They don't listen to me. They're just going to end up destroying the whole world. And then there are other days where you're just like, okay, awesome. This is coming back, right? When I get older, I'm going to do that too. <laughs> so memorize it. He says, he continues on here. This is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead while she, even while she lives. Command these things to do well, that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his own household, his home, he has denied the faith, and he's worse off than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. So he says a lot right there. Let me break it down for you. He's, there were women in the church in Ephesus, that were widowed. In that day and age, a woman, when she lost her husband, 
would need to be provided for by her sons or her children, okay? Because they were not able to get work and provide for themselves in that culture the way that we are able to in our culture. So you have to picture that a little bit. There's a cultural divide here. But the principles are the same. He says, when a, when a woman was widowed, there was a certain standard that she needed to meet. The first standard was spiritual. She needed to be a godly woman in order for the church to provide because there were some ungodly women who were false teachers who were spreading division in the church. And Paul said, we can't have that anymore, so we have to institute a policy, if you will, to protect from this. So a woman had to be a spiritually strong woman. She had to love the Lord. She had to be de devoted to living on purpose for Jesus, caring for other people, washing feet, just a sign of humility, showing hospitality, being a very welcoming, warm person and caring. Second, she had to be of a certain age. And in those days, being 60 or more meant you, couldn't, you definitely weren't going to work again or get remarried. And so you needed to be provided for. And third, she needed to have a family. She needed to have a family who would step up and provide for her. And he uses really harsh language. He says, if anyone neglects to take care of his own family, he's worse off than an unbeliever. He's abandoned the faith. Why? Because Paul's referencing, honor your mother and father. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's, it's this incredible truth that you find all through Scripture. You've got Deuteronomy chapter uh, 18 and 20. You've got, in Isaiah chapter 1, we actually learn, God was such a, an advocate for widows that his standard of justice was determined by how well or not well you treated widows. Isaiah chapter 1. Right? And then you get to Acts chapter 6 and James chapter 1. And Jesus has given to the New Testament church the responsibility for caring for these widows. And God loved and was an advocate for and a champion for widows. And some people took advantage of it. So Paul institutes these standards. He says you've got to love people and care for them and have a profound impact. You have to come to realize. Here's the, here's the thing I love the most about this, this section we just read. Paul's telling these people, even when you get older in age, God's not done with you. He's not done with you. Like you don't reach a, an age where God can't use you anymore. So even if you're a widow and you're older in age, God still has a mission and a plan and a purpose for your life, no matter how old you are. There's no retirement in ministry. You know, when I became one of the uh, staff members at this church, I left the ministry. That's what Ephesians 4 tells us. I became an equipper. So you come to church to get equipped, and then you go do the ministry. Like, you're the ministers. Every one of you is a minister. Put it on a business card. You're a minister, all right? You got it. And so th that's the idea here. He says, no matter how old you are, you don't retire from ministry because God's always got a purpose for you. I'm really tired. I'm really tired in the church of seeing the older generation get neglected. That does not mean that you just give away all preferences and you just change everything to the way they want it. It's not what I mean. But for older people to somehow have a feeling that they don't have a mission or a purpose, shame on us. Because this passage tells me that no matter how old you are, what season of life you're in, God has a plan and a purpose and a mission for your life. You are never too old to make a difference for Jesus. My first ministry was kind of an internship-esque type thing. And it was in Pompano Beach, Florida, First Christian Church at Pompano Beach. I'd spent two years of my undergraduate studies at Johnson Bible College in Knoxville, Tennessee. Had a burden for my mom. I wanted to share the gospel with her, so I transferred to Florida Christian College, and I got wind of this opportunity to work at this church, First Christian Church, in Pompano, which was only about 15 minutes from where my family lived. So I thought, wonderful opportunity, I'll, I'll go do this. And so I go and I interview, and there was actually not a youth minister there, so I actually had to step in and be the youth minister, which, just looking back, I kind of wish I would have had someone to intern under. So I get into this position, and they gave me this, like, 
this room with like a water heater and a desk. It was great uh, for an office, but they put my name on it, and so it made me feel like I got an office, yay, and the water heater. If it blows up, I'm in trouble. So, uh, but I'm there, and there was a church uh, secretary that worked there, and she began uh, to have to put up with a lot. Don't ever ask her about it. You'll see how this story ends, okay? Uh, she had to put up with a ton because I didn't know what I was doing. I had no clue. So I'm constantly asking questions and messing things up and fit, trying to figure things out. And she's patient and kind and just kind of put up with me. And one of the hardest workers I've ever known in my whole life. Just the work ethic was unbelievable, right? The only setback we had is that she was an Indiana Pacers fan. And so we had to <laughs> argue about that from time to time. But other than that, like, we got along really well. Well, my internship ends, and I go back to Florida Christian College, and I start working at a church plant in Orlando, Florida, and I meet my wife, and we get married, and we're there for about a year. Then we move to Lincoln, Illinois. Now, if you've never been to Lincoln, if you drive west, don't blink, because you'll drive right through it. It's a small town in Illinois, but it's got a seminary. And so I went to Lincoln, Illinois, and I went to seminary. And so this is now about three years removed from that internship. Then... Um, my father-in-law, if you're new around here, was the lead minister at New Hope for about 28 or 9 years, and he's still on our staff. But, um, so I came over here and started volunteering as a youth minister. Well, the volunteer position became half-time, became uh, a full-time youth ministry position, and then it morphed into an associate role, and now we're here, years later. I think it's been eight and a half years here at New Hope. And about three years into my time here at New Hope, I'm out in the lobby handling something, and uh, I turn around, and here comes uh, a lady, and I'm like, what's going on? Kind of, I recognize her, where, 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 where? I was like, no way. And so I walk up, I'm like, Maggie? I was like, from, from Pompano? She's like, yeah, I was, I, and I was like, what are you doing here? Are you visiting? You're like driving through? How did you, what's, what's going on? Like, she's like, no, I, I moved up here to Zinesville Meadows. And I met some people at Zinesville Meadows, and I'm looking for a Christian church, and they told me to come here, and so I'm here, and you're here, and this is super weird. And so... Years later, here she is. Here's where it gets really cool. Maggie then starts volunteering in our children's ministry and becomes my kid's teacher, okay? And, and she's not going to like this, but she is my kid's favorite teacher. Like, all my kids, they come home, they learn so much about the Bible. You guys think they learn it at home? They don't. They learn it from Maggie. And, and they, they're constantly talking about how much they enjoy it. And here's what's so fascinating to me. She began pouring into me years earlier. She was a widow. Years later, she's pouring into my kids, still a widow, because she resolved, right? She came to the conclusion that despite what she had gone through, God was not done with her. And now there's a legacy intact. See, it doesn't matter how old you are, where you think you are, or how far gone you think you are. God will always use you as long as you're willing to let him. He continues in verse 11. He says this, But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things that they shouldn't say, spreading false teaching is what he's saying. So I would have younger widows. Instead, I want younger widows to marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed away from Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them as well. See, let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. What he's saying is this. We need a policy in place, Timothy. Because you've got a lot of people that want to take advantage of this. And if you're not careful, you're going to be so preoccupied with this 
that you neglect the mission God has given to you. These ladies that are younger have figured out that the church is generous. And so instead of doing the hard work of getting remarried and establishing a family and and doing the hard work that culturally at that time was what you should have been doing, they're just coming to the church and freeloading. And not only that, they get in here and they begin to gossip and slander and tear people down, and and then they're spreading false teaching. He says, we've got to put an end to it because it's become a burden. And so institute a policy. And friends, I would tell you, to this day, the church needs policies. You hear that word and it just doesn't sit well with you. But the purpose of a godly policy is not power or position, it's protection. Policies protect from being distracted from the mission that God has given to the church. And so here at New Hope, we're constantly evaluating where we need policies. But not because we want to control and dominate, it's we want to protect. Because if you're not careful, you get so, like you, you have no idea. If, if we just continually were just passive and, and we just wanted to do the people pleaser route and not pay attention to the mission that we are convinced God has called us to, this church would be bankrupt if we just gave to every single thing and just whimsically didn't pay attention to it, had no policies. But no, you, Paul's saying here, when it comes to these widows, institute a policy. They have to meet this standard. If they meet this standard, you have to check this. You have to investigate this. And when it all checks out, you provide. This is what he's talking about. There's a policy right here, 1 Timothy chapter 5. And so we do that too. Let me give you an example. We have a benevolence ministry here at New Hope. And that's a ministry when people are in need, they call in, and we try to meet the needs as best we possibly can. And there's some policy set within that to guard and protect it. And the benevolence ministry in and of itself has prevented us from being distracted from the mission God has given us. It's a beautiful thing, but the purpose of it is not just to give. The purpose of it is to contribute in such a way that we still accomplish the mission. Well, this ministry has been headed by, uh, led by a, a man named Dan Smith. Okay? Dan hates that I've said his name, but it's Dan Smith. For over 20 years, he's faithfully given to this ministry. And I can't tell you, this man has the gift of discernment. He just does. And for 20 years, at the end of the year, he's stepping out of that. And to whom much is given, much is expected. And to whoever's faithful, he deserves the honor that's due him. Dan deserves that honor. He has faithfully served in this ministry for years, and he's protected us from a lot of chaos. I can't tell you how many times in my seven and a half to eight years I've called Dan and said, here's the issue, and he'll say, okay, we'll go back and ask these questions and bring that information back to me. And I bring it back to him, and he evaluates the situation. He looks at his database. He sees that there's a pattern of sin or a pattern of difficulty. He'll even evaluate and say, hey, this is a situation where they need more uh, counseling help or spiritual help, not necessarily just a practical physical. And it's just incredible. This is what Paul's talking about. You have to protect the mission by having these things in place. And so he tells Timothy, have these things in place. And then he continues, he says, not only discerning over those things, but now he wants to end the chapter by saying, within the church family, you have to really be careful about a few other things. Verse 17. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Real quick, here's what double honor is. The first one is this. God has set an elder aside to serve in a certain capacity. As an elder, when they prove faithful to that capacity, okay, they deserve practically for the church to follow their lead. When their decisions are made from the elders, you submit to those decisions and you follow the lead of the elders. Very simple. The double honor part is when uh, an elder is in need financially, the church meets that financial need. Now, I will, it continues on here in verse 17. He says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. We have one elder right now at New Hope, who is provided for financially, and that's me. I serve on the team of elders in the role of preaching, and my family is provided for because of that. We also have a staff at our church that the church provides for financially who are held to a very similar standard but don't serve in the elder capacity. 
Paul says, for the scripture says, we do this because you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out in the grain, and laborers deserve their wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder. Now he says more about the family without the evidence of two or three witnesses. So a charge is not a preference. I don't like what this elder said or did is not a charge. A charge is the Bible says this, the elder did this, they don't line up, we're coming to you. Two of the three people. Then the elders are to take that seriously. He says here, as for those who persist in this sin, so you try to correct it, if they persist in the sin, you rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may, the others may stand in fear. You say, we're going to hold you to a standard if you're an, an elder. If you're in a leadership capacity in the church, the Bible says you hold them to a very high standard and you don't waver from that. And then he says, I charge you in, in, the, in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these rules without prejudice, doing nothing from partiality. You must hold to this standard, Timothy. Do not be hasty in laying on the hands. This is not a light decision. You don't just throw a guy's name in the pool to be an elder because he's a good business leader or because he served as an elder in a church prior to being in this church. You check it out. You do the homework, and he describes that. He says, or you don't take part in the sins of others, but keep yourself pure. He kind of sneaks in verse 23. He says, don't just use water, but use some wine for your stomach. Timothy was having some anxiety issues. Trying to, uh, imagine everything I've taught you today, and then Paul says, now, Timothy, go do it all. You'd be like, what? What? This is crazy. Appointing elders and leaders. And same anxiety Paul felt, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, when he said, I've been through all kinds of things, but my anxiety because I want the church to be healthy is so intense. I just want the church to be healthy. Timothy felt that same anxiety for the church in Ephesus. So verse 24, he says, The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. He says, you have to do your homework. You have to vet these guys. Because look, you might have a guy whose life seems really well put together and you throw his name in to be an elder and he gets put in this position, but what you didn't see is because you didn't do your homework, you didn't see the secret sin that was hidden. Some sins are obvious, other sins aren't. Do your homework, figure it out, because that will disqualify him. He says on the same side, you might have a guy who's not a very boisterous personality, he's not very outgoing, he's, he's not in the spotlight a lot, but he's faithful and true, and when you do your homework, you realize all the good this guy's been doing that hasn't got the attention the other good has, but it's there because you can't hide good for long either if you'll do the work of investigating it. So he says, at the end of this, here's what he says. The church family has to have clear communication and discerning leadership. So I'm going to boil down everything that we've said today into three things, and we'll finish up. First is this. Godly communication is key for the health of the family and the church. Friends, just hear me real quick, if you don't hear a lot else. How you communicate with one another is so extremely important. And here's the thing. I've done so much marriage counseling with so many couples we, myself included, we are not good listeners. We're not good at it. Because someone will present something to us and we're responding to the presentation and we're not even spending half a second trying to listen to the motive behind it. We don't spend any time trying to hear why someone says what they say. We just respond because we're selfish by nature. We want to come back instead of listening. I think Jesus was a master listener. People hit him hard with stuff and he would discern it and think about it and say, that's not what you really meant. Here's what you really meant, so I'm going to address this. I think this is why the half-brother of Jesus, James, writes in James 1.19, he says, be quick to listen, slow to speak. Don't just talk, listen, slow to speak, and then you'll become slow to anger. See, this is the way it works. When we listen first, we speak second, then we're not angry. But you know you do it the other way around? You start talking and running off at the mouth, like we all are guilty of doing, chief of all sinners. Right? And you don't listen really much at all, and you find yourself always angry. Many of us, we just need to be quiet and listen. Listen for the motive instead of reacting to the presentation. The second thing is this. The family is the first line of defense and needs to be protected and guarded. 
Your family is the first line of defense as you age and get older in this life. That's what the Bible just got done teaching. That we need to step up and pay attention to our family members that need us. And we need to do what we need to do in order to provide for them. Your first area of ministry is your home. Many Christian leaders, they've had incredible ministries, businesses, and careers and accomplishments, but they've neglected their families in order to get there. This begins a cycle. Hear this. This begins a cycle of faithlessness that will go on for generations. Unless you stop it. Do not sacrifice your family for your career. Do not sacrifice your family on the altar of your own success. It's not worth it. Instead, start defining success through God's lens, which is providing for and creating a gospel-centered family legacy. Last is this, discerning leadership is essential for the health of the church. Friends, we cannot take lightly who's in leadership positions. We cannot take lightly who uh, has authority or influence in the church. You must be very intentional and discern motives. To that end, those of us aspiring to lead must check our hearts, our motives, and our lives, and we must be intentional to live out faithful lives for Jesus. We need to approach God's church and our families, hear this, with humility and selflessness. We need to take sin very seriously and display discernment and grace to everyone. When you go home today, what's that environment going to be like? It's up to you. You have a say in that. And it's a direct reflection of the relationship you have with Jesus. As a church moving forward, how we interact and love and care for one another is a direct reflection of the health or lack thereof of our relationship with Jesus. The choice is ours. Let's pray.